Now let's think about it a little bit. Midnight in the desert. Where have you heard that before? Midnight in the desert. Midnight in the desert. Let me think about that. Oh, yes. There's this lovely gal in, in Nashville. There's this lovely gal in Nashville who, uh, I'm hearing music. I wonder where that's coming from. It's really strange. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Great River ME1NV. The big desktop slab, my friends, into the Harrison 32 EQ and the RNC 500 analog tones on a Thursday afternoon in the moon cabin. On the show today, it's Jeffrey Craner, co-creator of Welcome to Night Vale, co-creator of Within the Wires, author of books, and deeply insightful man. I was so thrilled to talk to Jeffrey because Welcome to Night Vale didn't just change my life. It changed the face of podcasting, which is something that we will talk about in this interview. But first, let me, let me take you back. It's 2012. I'm working at the big search engine company. I am an administrative business partner, which I always used to say on first dates is 40% office manager, 60% camp counselor. Let me give you an example of the kind of thing I was responsible for at the behemoth entire city block office where the big search engine company was headquartered here in New York. There was a feeling that the in-house coffee shop at the headquarters should reflect the tone and style of the community where the office was in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. And so we would convene these meetings where we would try to figure out how to create a set of blueprints and barista uniforms and menu items and decor that would suggest a quote-unquote authentic New York coffee shop. And I would sit there and I would seethe because in my mind, if we wanted the 22-year-olds who were being paid $100,000 a year right out of undergrad to have an authentic New York coffee shop experience, why did we not just invite them to walk their behinds out of the behemoth headquarters and go 500 yards in any direction and go to an actual authentic New York City coffee shop, which needed their disposable income? Why were we trying to create this approximation, this facsimile of it, within the walls of our gilded snack palace that we called an office? Why were we doing that? And I raised this in these meetings, and I was shunned. 
And it was a very early moment where I realized I needed to get out of the big search engine company because in my function as an administrative business partner, what I was a partner to was the building of the world by people who were taking drastic and expensive steps to avoid living in the world, who were building an approximation, an impression of the world. As a side note, do you know what the name of the metric associated with whether or not an advertisement on the internet finds its way to a user of the internet is? The name of that metric is impression. Isn't that dystopian? The The name of the metric for whether this piece of trickery that is designed to capture your attention and make you think you care about something that a company is trying to sell you, the name for that fabricated level of engagement with your genuine emotions is impression. It's an impression of human connection. And that is what I felt I was a party to in my capacity as an administrative business partner at this giant company. And I began to fear that I was part of something very sinister. And like many corporate drones, I would take refuge in those days by sitting at my desk and listening to podcasts. And one day I found a podcast called Welcome to Night Vale. And Welcome to Night Vale was this remarkable, bizarre, singular-sounding show. And the format was this. At the beginning of the show, a fictional DJ in a small town somewhere out in the American West would welcome me to the broadcast at the community radio station in this small fictional town where uncanny and terrifying things were happening all the time. For example, there were officials of a vague yet menacing government organization issuing strange directives that all citizens were expected to follow. And... (laughs) as part of the Night Vale sense of humor, that vague yet menacing government organization was literally called the vague yet menacing government organization. (laughs) There was a dog park in the center of town where it was forbidden to go. In fact, it was forbidden to even approach the dog park. And if you did, it was clear that there were very grim penalties for that infraction. There were reports of a faceless old woman who secretly lived in your house if you lived in the town. We actually had the woman who played the character, the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home on the show previously. That was Mara Wilson. And the DJ of this radio station, Cecil, was this fascinating character because he was both warning listeners about these dangers. He seemed to be on our side and saying to us, I know that this is confusing, I'm worried about this also, and I'm here to provide information to help you take steps to remain safe from these nefarious forces. But he also was sometimes serving, to my interpretation at least, as a mouthpiece of this mysterious regime that seemed to govern the town. Like, 
he would say, do not approach the dog park, which it seemed like it was more him, you know, carrying water for whoever these forces that were trying to scare everybody were um, more than he was, you know, one of us being like, hey, what's up with this dog park? But and he would jump back and forth. He would be on either side of that line, which, of course, is exactly how I felt working at the big search engine company. I felt like, yes, there are some things that we are doing here that are absurd and ridiculous and seem bad for humanity in the long term. But they're also helping me pay off my student loans, which I really need to pay off, helping me pay off my credit card debt, which I really need to pay off, allowing me to invest in audio equipment so that I can learn how to make radio in my free time, which is what I want to be doing long term inviting really interesting people like Ira Glass and Mike Birbiglia to give talks during lunch. And so I constantly felt like I was sitting in this very, very fraught tension and looking for the boundary between benevolent and sinister. And the big search engine company was also a very competitive environment and you were made to feel like you might get fired all the time. So I was also just trying to stay afloat much like a resident of a small desert community where the sky periodically darkens and a, a, f- a force of nature called the glow cloud appears and starts vacuuming things up into it and demanding that we all praise it uh, for it to stop doing that. The synchronicity was so profound and I became obsessed with Night Vale. I could not listen to enough of it. They released episodes every two weeks, and the second the new episodes were released, I, I downloaded it and I just absorbed it into my brain as quickly as I could. The episodes were only 25 minutes long, and those were the best 25 minutes of my entire day. And lest this come across as some affinity of convenience based on where I was in my life, I think that rhyme with my own situation in the world really bonded me emotionally with the show very quickly. But from a craft standpoint, it was also just extraordinary. The show was was funny. I already gave the example of the vague yet menacing government agency being called vague yet menacing government agency. There were all these darkly comedic ideas like uh, the idea that librarians at the library in the town were like these bloodthirsty creatures who you had to fear. Um, There were ads for bizarre products. So the sense of humor was also very palpable in all this. It wasn't all vaguely eldritch horror. But then there was also really effectively written eldritch horror, which was super engaging to listen to. That that, that genre of horror for me is just right in my mystery-lusting sweet spot where there's clearly some very, very terrifying menace just out of the frame of our perception. And it's periodically seeming to peek through the veil and we never quite get a glimpse of it, but we can feel in a very profound way that we are in grave danger. I find that sensibility so titillating and, and exciting and I'm drawn to it. It, it. The idea that the mystery might ultimately be revealed is so, I just feel so enmeshed with that. I, I want to be pulled deeper and deeper into that kind of world. And Night Vale did that so effectively. Added humor to it. And then there was this other element to it where uh, there's kind of a similar arc to every Night Vale episode where 
a new dilemma that the town is facing would be introduced. There would be a couple of subplots off of that dilemma. And then just at the moment where it seemed like that week's threat was about to subsume the entire town, Cecil would tell us that they had to break away from the show to go to the weather. And the weather was always a really awesome original song by some cool band that the creators of the show were interested in. So you would get to hear this awesome original song for three minutes or so. And then the show would come back after those three minutes, and the threat would have somehow been resolved, but not all the way. There would still be lingering questions about how the town was going to move forward, and that's what would keep you coming back next week. It was a bullseye of a formula, and there was just nothing else like it. There was nothing else like it, and I was not the only one who fell in love with this show. Within two years, the Welcome to Night Vale team was selling out giant Broadway-sized theaters with their live shows, and they really kicked off the explosion of the audio drama revival that was later picked up by other previous Midnight Disease guests like Paul Bay and Terry Miles and Lauren Shippen. And all of a sudden, this medium that is very, very old of fantastical stories just told through the human voice, which had largely gone away for many, many years, was back in such a palpable and profound way to the point that eventually giant for-profit media companies hired incredibly famous actors to try to replicate the originality of what the Night Vale team was doing. And all of that started with Joseph Fink and my guest on the show today, Jeffrey Craner. They were the two guys who came up with Welcome to Night Vale and started producing it back in 2012. All of it began with them. And once Welcome to Night Vale became such a runaway sensation, both Joseph and Jeffrey started other projects that kind of picked up the energy that Night Vale had created. And in Jeffrey's case, that is a show that is also still running called Within the Wires. And Within the Wires is another just bullseye of a conceit. Every season, he's just launched the eighth season of this show, every season unfolds with you as a listener hearing some kind of audio product. So in the first season, it's these meditation tapes that you are listening to because you supposedly are a patient at this hospital and you're not really sure like why you're in the hospital and the meditation tapes are meant to be part of your treatment but as you listen you slowly start to realize that the speaker in the tapes is trying to give you a secret message that you are in danger and that they are using these tapes that have been prescribed to send you messages about how to escape the situation that you're in. And every season of Within the Wires remixes that conceit in some different way. Starts over with a new set of characters and uh, positions you as a different kind of listener to a different kind of audio. So there's another season where you are listening to a series of museum audio guides. And as you listen to those 
a a secret story that is not at all what you think you're listening to begins to emerge the more you listen. And Jeffrey has since adapted Within the Wires into a book, and he and Joseph continue to produce Welcome to Night Vale, and they uh, recently released a new show called Unlicensed on Audible, which you'll hear us talk about a little bit, which is a very interesting spin on the detective genre, which, of course, has a very rich history in audio fiction. This guy is a visionary. And the amount that I love his work is going to be very evident (laughs) in this conversation. This is very much uh, one of those midnight disease interviews where you hear me saying, hey, remember when you did that thing that was wonderful? How does it feel to be so wonderful at making wonderful things? (laughs) But I promise I'm I'm not just being a sycophant the entire time. I do think we get into some, some really interesting territory, including a pretty lengthy discussion of exactly what we talked about on the Friday episode last week, which is this idea of how radio is the ultimate form of good company. It's just a great conversation, and I I can't wait for you to hear it. I invite you to listen to the wisdom of one of our medium's most original minds, Jeffrey Craner on WALT. Jeffrey Craner, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. I would love to jump back quite a bit um, and talk about your origins as a writer. I listened to your interview on um, You Are Good, talking about Sleepless Mm -hmm. in Seattle. And you said a couple of things that really fascinated me in that conversation. But one of them was that you had this memory, and please forgive me if I'm misquoting you, of watching Sleepless in Seattle as, uh, I think you were in high school, Mm -hmm. and noticing how interesting it is to have a romantic comedy where the two romantic leads don't actually meet until the very end. Mm -hmm. Um, What an interesting writerly device. And it struck me that that was an extremely artistically perceptive observation for you to have. So I was curious to know, what was your relationship with writing at that time? Was it something you'd already been doing for a while? Where were you on your journey around the time you you noticed that? The earliest thing I remember really writing as far as like fiction goes was like fifth grade. And I think the Alexander's No Good, Terrible, Very Bad Day <laughs> book, like I think, you know, that was obviously very popular uh-huh. in grade school. And I just did a parody of the book and mm-hmm. wrote it mostly to amuse my friends. And then it ended up in my teacher's hand and she read it for the class and everybody laughed and it was funny and whatever uh-huh. else. And uh-huh. so that was uh-huh. the first moment where I thought, oh, I really love this kind of theatrical validation for <laughs> doing something. And when I was in high school, I wasn't writing as much other than for the high school newspaper. I was really dead set on I'm, I'm going to be a journalist and I want to be. I want to be a humor columnist like Irma Bombeck or Dave Barry or something like that. You know, <laughs> oh, the books that my grandparents both had. of them. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think that's where I was is that I wanted to be funny and I wanted to be contrarian. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do things that 
were sort of out of the norm. I got really bored very quickly with TV shows and movies, and I found myself really attracted towards stuff that felt edgier. Okay. And edgy doesn't have to be like, uh, you know, in your face pushing the envelope edgy. It just right. had to be something that just just did not play to what was going to be the normal sitcom expectation. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the observation that you had about Sleepless in Seattle strikes me as fitting very neatly into that formulation, that this was within a somewhat familiar, non-experimental format. Broadly speaking, this was an innovative and experimental choice. And so you were picking up on that, it seems like. Yeah, I I really love that about it. I thought that was really neat. I thought that was a, a cool way to do the love story. And also that it there's a question at the end of that movie as to how romantic their story will be too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and I think at that at that age at like 17 or 18 or whatever I was that you know, probably going through it in terms of like how you de- deal with romance in your life. <laughs> right. And how you even acquire romance in your life. Uh-huh. And here was a movie that made it look safe, but different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that made a lot of sense to me. And I think that was the other element that wasn't just writerly. It wasn't just a creative choice, but it was also really emotionally meaningful. Like it still told a good story. And as yeah. I've gotten older, I've really tried to go back to that is that to tell myself like, it's not enough to be like clever with your words. Like it still has to be a fun story. You can't just be subversive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes me want to ask you about your experience writing for the school paper. Cause I've talked to a number of writers who started out either literally writing for the school paper or who began their journey to their life as writers via journalism. And oftentimes what I'll hear folks say is, Journalism was a way to be writing. Um, I wasn't necessarily interested in breaking news or being an objective observer of the political scene or whatever. Um, I just wanted to be writing and in a community of writers and journalism was a way of accessing that. So what, because I hear you saying that what was appealing about people like Dave Barry and Irma Bombeck and Nora Ephron to some extent Mm -hmm. was the... There is room for emotion, whether that emotion is surprise, subversion, like a subversive spirit. So what was your relationship to, you know, if we can call a high school newspaper journalism? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What was that for you? Um, I think it was just an entry to writing. It was like the one place that you could write something that didn't feel like book reports. And Mm -hmm. I was really, really good at writing book reports without reading the book. And even without even really reading the Cliff's notes, but wow, I, that's quite a skill. <laughs> I did not enjoy doing the book report. I didn't like set like uh-huh. just telling you what happened in a thing. Like I wanted to give my opinion about stuff. Mm-hmm. I wanted to like. Mm-hmm. I think what I th- didn't have the terminology for, but what I was really interested in was like literary criticism, probably. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't mm-hmm. a thing that we were being taught. Journalism, though, like getting on the high school newspaper was a place where you could choose a story. You could, even if it wasn't fiction, you could choose the story you wanted to tell. And a lot of them were really dumb, like new lockers were going in at the school or whatever. But there was there was a particular moment where my friend Laura, uh, who was on the school paper with me, wanted to do a story that had come out. We grew up in Mesquite, Texas, a mm-hmm. suburb of Dallas. 
And there was a story about a kid at McCorder, I believe it was McCorder Elementary School in Mesquite, who's First Nations, right? He's a First Nations family, and he had uh, long hair, and they would not let him enter the school with the long hair. He had to cut his hair. And it ended up becoming a national story. It ended up on MTV News. But part of the whole process was my friend Laura, who actually ended up becoming a journalist (laughs) in her real life because (laughs) Uh she was very good at it, even in high school. But she went and did research. Like, she was calling the superintendent's office. She called the family. She just, like, put this whole story together. Our our advisor, Mrs. Darley, was like, sure, let's do this. Yeah, absolutely. Like, breaking news. This is great. And we got the kibosh put on that story. And I remember understanding just how red tapey everything is, how political things can be uh-huh. in journalism. Uh-huh. And I thought that was exciting. I liked that level of, like frustration and anger like i didn't like it but i liked it if that makes sense yeah yeah so the other thing that makes me think about is i know that when you and joseph were beginning your collaboration he had just seen you do this piece of i don't want to mischaracterize it performance art or a solo Mm -hmm. show where you had you had gone to the park earlier in the day and burned a book, yeah, um, and then the 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 show was in some way about showing the ashes to the audience. Um, and I heard I heard you say in an interview about this that you were you were interested in exploring the boundary of that, the cultural boundary, which feels somewhat connected to this experience you were just describing of finding stories that that put their finger on on things that we're uncomfortable with. And it also makes me think of what I consider to be, if I may, a, a recurring theme in a lot of your work, which is characters who come into an awareness of the systems that are put in place to conceal the truth. And I'm wondering where... If you accept that as a as a through line in your work, uh-huh. one and two, if that's a conscious thing, where you kind of came into an awareness of a desire to explore that space, I do think that's a recurring thing. I uh, it was in my twenties. I worked at a theater in Dallas called Kitchen Dog Theater. And I don't even remember what conversation I was having with my friend Tim that I worked there with. And we were having some big picture, newsy, political, moral, philosophical discussion. And he just said, you're a structuralist. And I, was, <laughs> and I think he meant that kind of tongue in cheek. But I had no idea. Like, I didn't take philosophy. I, don't, I didn't know what structuralism was. Uh-huh. And he just said, he's like, everything's a binary to you. Huh. And... And I was like, that's really interesting. And the more I looked at it and, you know, structuralism is, it, it is about the, the binary. Like it's about exploring what the minimum and maximum are. And I thought about college calculus. I started as an engineering major at Texas A&M because I thought there'd be more money in that than, than, than <laughs> journalism, which uh-huh. I think there is. However, um, after several failing grades, <laughs> I decided maybe I'm not the one who should build bridges, literal bridges. <laughs> So um, calculus was about the minimum and the maximum, the 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 zero and the infinity, mm-hmm. uh, the 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 you know the zero and the one, and I don't like thinking of the world in strict binaries for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I like 
assigning the binaries and explore in my mind as a model mm-hmm. and then exploring what's in the middle of all of that. And that play, it was called bucket O blank. Mm. And it was just like the blank. And it was a short play as part of the Neo New York Neo Futurist weekly show. Yeah. And the whole thing was about moral beliefs and what was right and what was wrong. And the book represented something that I thought was so horribly wrong. And that's why I burned it. And I wouldn't tell anyone what the name of it was because I didn't want them to go read it themselves because uh-huh, that would uh-huh. just provide them be like, even if they agreed with me, I don't want them buying the book or supporting this writer or whatever. But it is about the morality of what it means to even burn a book mm-hmm. and what it means to believe in certain things, what it means to believe in creationism versus teach it in public schools, you know, yeah, these yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. And I, I've always been curious about exploring those grand narratives, I think, is the terminology used by structuralists and post-structuralists uh-huh, about like uh-huh. tearing down modernism and things like that. And so I think to Tim's point, I do think about the world in, in those models because it's easy to, I find it easier as a creator, as a writer, to give, to pin myself into an area mm-hmm. and to work all th- all of that small space. I feel like you've just given me a very interesting clue about your thought process on some of these worlds that you create, which is by imposing a relative zero and a relative infinity on some world, on mm-hmm. some environment of characters and and rules, you give yourself an intermediate space in which characters can develop and story can unfold. A place to start and a, and a limit against which characters' impulses can can bump up. And it's occurring to me in this moment that that's what is so exciting to hear, in, whether it's Night Vale or Within the Wires, there's this dual awareness that we are in an imposed reality. You kind of give us that imposed reality. And then you give us characters who share that awareness of the imposed reality, which is very, very cool. Like Cecil, off the top of my head, he is of Night Vale, but he's also aware that he's like of Night Vale in this really mm-hmm. interesting way. I don't know. I guess that's an epiphany for me in this moment about about the things I love about your work. Um, oh, thanks. I, I love that a lot, too. And I, I'm a big proponent of some level of handholding with the audience. And uh-huh, I don't mean uh-huh. strictly mother-child type handholding. Let me show you how to listen to a podcast. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't want to baby anyone. Uh-huh. But I think audio is so different from a novel in so many obvious ways. But one of the biggest ways is that the voice in your ear is so much more intimate than a word on a page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a word on a page can hit you in a different, myriad different ways more impactful than an audio, than audio can. I don't mean to denigrate novels. No, yeah. It's just to say that once you have a voice in your ear and that voice is talking to you, that is some form of voice of God. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. your trust in that voice is so different (laughs) than Mm -hmm. if you could see the person. And also then if you never heard him and you only saw it on the page and the voice was in your head. And so, yeah, having that voice be conscious of the listener to me has always been really, really important. Even if they don't say, hello, listener, or... You know, <laughs> hello, you, your name, your name is Natalie, and I'm going to talk to you, yeah. Natalie. You're the character now, which we do in Within the Wires all the time. But right, right. Just some level of 
that the voice knows you're there and that you know that they know that. Yes. I heard you say once that that for you is an important difference between an audiobook and a podcast, which is that a podcast fundamentally is addressing a listener, whereas an audiobook is a version of something that was intended for a reader that you put in your ears instead. Audiobook feels like I walked in on a lecture, and I hope it's an interesting one. <laughs> right, right. And a podcast feels like I've walked in on a conversation, and hopefully someone in that conversation physically turns their body toward me to let me know I'm included. Yeah. yeah. Some some podcasts I've listened to don't really do that. They just, the dialogue keeps moving or the story keeps moving in a way that like it doesn't, it leaves me behind. And sometimes you go to a party and you walk in on a group conversation and nobody really acknowledges that you're standing there awkwardly holding your drink. And so you're just like, <laughs> I will edge away over to this other thing yes. now. And it's a and terrible times, feeling. It's a terrible it feeling. Yeah. And sometimes somebody kind of like turns their shoulder ever so subtly to say, you're in the circle now. We're yes. going to continue talking. You don't know us. Let this person finish telling their story, but you're welcome here. And that's, I think, a good podcast metaphorically does that. Yes. You, you know, you're making me think, I, I had this thought recently that one of the greatest small-scale forms of grace that we can offer each other as people is that exact scene that you're describing, where there's a circle of conversation, and you, maybe you were in the circle previously, and then you went to the bathroom, or you went to refill your drink, and then you came back, or you're just walking up to it for the first time, and somebody, just as you described, turns to you and very subtly, like, nods you in, or brings you, makes space for you, and then they say, oh, we were just talking about bad experiences at the poker table, or, or whatever it was. Yes. They give you just like a little clue, like, this is what's going on here. And all of a sudden, you, you go instantly from outsider to, to insider, from exclusion to in, inclusion. It, it's, such a, it's such a tiny thing. And the reason I want to fixate on this for a second is because... I'm very fascinated by this technique that you and Joseph are using in Unlicensed. I'm thinking of the first scene where Molly meets Lou for the first mm -hmm. time. And we're hearing the story of Molly's perception of Lou, what, what Molly made of Lou when she walked into the office for the first time. And we hear that in Molly's first-person monologue. And then... In Lou's first-person monologue, we hear her perception of Molly coming in. And instead of staging that scene as dialogue, we get Molly's perception of it and Lou's perception of it in monologue to us, not to each other. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of handing this back and forth. And as I was listening to that, I was like, I've never heard anything like this before. Like, why are they doing this this way? And then there's this amazing moment where Lou, she's looking for a piece of paper on her desk and her desk is very messy. And she tells us that Molly reaches out and puts her hand on Lou's hand and that that feels so good. And, mm -hmm. and Lou, I think, says, like, that was good. I need to be stopped sometimes. And for me, it, it was like your whole approach crystallized for me in that moment, because 
and and obviously I want to get your take on this. Um, I'm just telling you how it made me feel. But um, <laughs> your whole approach crystallized to me because I thought if we were watching a movie of this scene, we would see that happen. But mm-hmm. we can't see that happen. So how are we going to get that feeling, which gives us such insight into Lou that she is aware that she needs to be stopped sometimes? She has to tell us what it felt like. Mm-hmm. That's the only way for it to happen. I'm going to stop talking. Tell me, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell me um, what you make of all that. It's um, I that scene stuck with me too because that that's in the original first draft of the episode that Joseph wrote and okay. that, that, okay. that the hand stopping and I uh, I I clocked that scene too is really mm-hmm. impactful. And there's a couple of things there because if we say the other two that it. it this isn't really how the model in my head exists, but let's, if we set up a model, cause you know, I like these things. And yes. <laughs> if we say that, like, you know, we have a purely visual form like television and a purely written form, like, like novels. And then in the middle you have podcasts where you have no visual, but you do have the audio. Yeah. Um, but the thing that you can do in a novel that you can't do on television really is explore how somebody feels about a thing. Yeah. And you can express it like a great actor can show you mm-hmm. how something feels. But there's something about the hand scene and the the way Lou, and especially the actor Lucia Struss, who plays her. To me, when, when I first read it and what I heard Lucia do in the in the audio recording exactly as it was in my head is, it's almost like she realized in that very moment, I need somebody to stop me. She'd never said that out loud to mm-hmm. anyone before. And mm-hmm. in some ways, we, the audience, were going to be these characters therapist like we were going to be the people to hear yeah how they feel about things and i think that that's why it's such an emotionally moving moment even a tiny emotional movement mm-hmm. but it, it it is it's a character reveal because it's not just saying a character saying i need to be stopped sometimes because that can mean a lot of different things mm-hmm. but it's i need to be stopped sometimes combined with the gesture which says without molly saying anything which says that somebody sees you and what you're doing and they know the exact approach yeah i heard a, a story a while back i was listening to sports talk radio um <laughs> as, as you guys could probably predict i was doing but it was after some uh, there was a kicker who had missed several like easy kicks in a game and was kind of the the goat in the bad way of the fan base. And I was listening to this, uh, radio, you know, sports talk radio guy named Norm Hitzkiss in Dallas. And he was telling a story about, he used to be a kicker back in the, you know, when he was really young and he missed a kick. He missed a really key kick in a game. And he sat down on the bench on his college team and he just didn't want anyone talking to him. He just, it's like, I don't need people to come up and say, good job, good job, good job. But one of the other players, one of the defensive players came up and just sat next to him and didn't say a word. And he was like, it was the most like calming thing. Mm. It felt like it was, I didn't realize that's what I needed. Yeah. I didn't, because it feels disingenuous to have somebody say, you'll get him next time, Tiger. Like, I almost wish if you were going to say anything, you'd be like, fuck you for missing that kick, you asshole. Because it would feel more honest. But this person just sat next to me, and having the physical presence of somebody who's just with you, yes, powerful. Okay, I'm really glad you brought up sports, because I realized something in, in preparing to talk to you today that really magnetizes me to Cecil in Welcome to Night Vale. 
And it's that in many ways, I think I have the same relationship with him that I have with, I'm a big baseball fan. You're wearing a a Red Sox beanie. I hope you don't mind if I reveal. Um, (laughs) So I suspect uh, you may have some relationship with what I'm about to say. And my favorite way to experience baseball other than being there is to listen to it on the radio. Mm -hmm. And what I love about it is baseball, more than many other sports, has an imposed structure, right? It has an imposed structure, but no relationship until this year with time. Things can take as long as as they take. And so at any moment, something that defies the structure can happen. And, you know, your team can be ahead by two, and then your pitcher hits a batter, and then another guy gets a single, and then the guy after that hits a home run, and now your team's behind, and the whole thing took seven pitches. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden... Everything that you thought you understood has been completely upended and you're in a new reality now. And then it's the the entire field resets and it's batter up and there's a new batter in the box and he's standing in a confined rectangle and the pitcher has to get back on the rubber again and throw another pitch. And this too is life, right? Mm-hmm. You are making your way through your day and all of a sudden in the space of seven metaphorical pitches, your entire understanding of how things are supposed to work is upended. And then the whole system resets and, you know, the the doors open on the subway and you've just seen two people fall in love or get in a fight and then you have to get off the train and go to work. And what I love about baseball broadcasters is that they sit with you in that mystery they go through every step of that with you and that's what cecil does in night Vale. is he says hello i am cecil i am in this world that as we've discussed has certain rules or so we think those rules are constantly being violated things are are permeating the veil there's glimmers of understanding, there's cataclysmic events, then there's the weather, and then when we come back from the weather, all has been reset to normal. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm still here with you, and I went through it all with you, and we'll be here again tomorrow. And there is... So I got a little bit emotional just, like, thinking about <laughs> yeah. that, that moment. I feel that at the end of every Night Vale episode. And it makes me feel so good. Um, and I'm, I'm, another thing that you said in the Sleepless in Seattle conversation is that you spent a lot of time in college driving back and forth from school to home. And you would take these like three-hour drives and it would be late at night and you'd be listening to the radio. And I, I'm wondering if you have like a similar relationship with that kind of single voice in the in the yes. mystery. Yes. Uh, it it radio voices have always been the most calming wonderful mm-hmm. thing for me. Mm-hmm. And obviously there are a lot of examples of not calming radio voices <laughs> in this world, especially in America, but right. There is a certain type of person that that is there with you, right? Like there's there's kind of the what is like the kind of the the late night R&B radio stations yeah. would do like what like Rolling Thunder or something right, like that right, right? and yeah. um or even Delilah, a silent storm you know? yeah you yeah, know? yeah but 
there's something to the quality of the voice. Mm-hmm. Somebody just telling you how things are going to be advice shows I've, I've always really loved. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's Dr. Laura, whatever it is, like there's just something there to that. To anybody in the field of, of, of science fiction and horror, like everyone's an Art Bell fan. Yeah. But but Art Bell, for, for all of the chaos on his show, yeah. he was he was the ballast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything else was crazy. The news stories were crazy, the conspiracies were crazy, and the callers were the craziest. Yep. But Art Bell was just there to like yeah. sort it all out for you. Mm-hmm. And that felt really good because he cre- his show created chaos from nothing. Yes. yes. And then restored it, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Um I love that. It's you know, it's a conversation, you know. We've a lot has been written about parasocial relationships, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to podcasting, but I do think those relationships are really important in perspective uh, because it, it is somebody to walk you home at night. Night yeah. is scary. The yeah. world is scary. Um, and that, that feels really good. Yeah. What do you suppose, because now I'm thinking about Within the Wires, and one of the things that is similarly gratifying in Within the Wires is... Even though it, you know, this the the details, the specifics of this change from season to season, but it's almost like the subtext of each one of each story is you're not imagining things. Mm-hmm. This thing you're detecting, it's really there. Just get, keep listening. You're you're going to put it all together. And again, there's something. There's a deep calm, like a deep reassurance that comes from that. Where do you suppose the impulse to give people that sort of moment comes from for you? I think I'm always trying to recreate the feeling I got of listening to the radio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I always like the best moments on radio. Mm-hmm. And some of them are wild moments. I, re- I remember first discovering Howard Stern as a teenager when I yeah. first got my car in like the early 90s being like, what is happening? Who is this person? Yeah. There is DNA of Howard Stern in Night Vale, which is a crazy thing to say. No, absolutely. Absolutely, but, but, yeah. But that is there. But I think the, the ones where you can connect to their personality, this is going to sound like a major digression, but it's related. That's okay. I, I've I been a, monologuing at you, so please. <laughs> I had a breakthrough as it relates to this recently when I was, I went to London in January. Uh-huh. Sort of like a, a new tradition. I, I meet some friends who live in Dublin. We go to London for a few days cool. in January because mm-hmm. that's the beautiful time of year to be in London. Yeah. But we'll go see shows and hang out and catch up. And it's a lot of fun. And my friend Sarah loves ABBA. And I've always liked ABBA. Like, nobody doesn't like. You can't not like ABBA. <laughs> but I haven't really thought much about ABBA before uh-huh. other than I like their music. They're all bops. And there is a show called ABBA Voyage. It's That's the name of their new album, although there's a fully, like, just hologram ABBA production. They built a whole theater strictly for hologram ABBA concert Wow! in East London over by Canary Wharf, and Sarah wanted to go see it, and I was like, dope, let's go do it. And we had tickets on the dance floor, and I watched this hologram ABBA, and listening to Sarah talk about it before we got there, she said, I asked her why she loves ABBA so much, like, their music really gets to her and she's like because it's so honest Mm. it's so truthful because Mm. these people became very famous very quickly in the 1970s through eurovision and it was two married couples and their marriages just fell apart over the next eight years and then they didn't do anything after that and if you look every song of theirs is so sad because 
all of their songs are about breaking up. Mm-hmm. And then that was the last, and then the show starts, and I'm like, this is cool, really amazing, like, full, just floor-to-ceiling in this giant arena-sized, uh, detailed, computer-animated ABBA figures and hologram ABBA, mm-hmm. and it was gorgeous, and it's really, you know, moves you, and this music is so moving, and I just listened to all the lyrics, and they're so simple, and they're so poppy, and no matter how upbeat the song is, with some obvious exceptions, they're all about divorce and they're all so like pulled back and true that mm-hmm. they, they wrote the songs based on what they were going through and they still did their shows together until they couldn't anymore. Oh my God. And I was going through a similar thing in my own life with, 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 you know, with my own partnership and it was just a like, shit, I'm really moved. And I just have never had, I've never been moved by music like that in that way and it took hologram abba to shake me to my core <laughs> and i couldn't stop thinking about it i'm like is that just because like i just hadn't been to a concert in years and i forget how emotional it can be uh-huh. but i think what it is is that why i loved at why and why i've just been listening to them nonstop for a month and a half since i went <laughs> is because i'm 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 experiencing them in a, in a new way because there's an honesty in the art. Mm-hmm. And I think I value that more than anything. And that's honesty is different than accuracy and it's different than yes. absolute truth. And it's different than fact. Mm-hmm. Honesty is a thing where you reveal something about yourself that is more true than words could ever say, but yet you found the words to say it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all that to be said is I think for me, a good radio host mm-hmm was that type of like yes honesty it's all a character mm-hmm. these are not the people when they go home but these are this is this is an essence of this person yes that they know how to give you their true self without being their actual self yes yes i hope that makes sense that does make a tremendous amount of sense what do you think cuz i hear you saying why that sense with abba was resonant for you at this particular period in your in your own emotional journey. What do you think it was about listening in, in college on those drives that was connective for, for you? I think it was just the voice of somebody with me. Having somebody to sort of just talk to you is really nice. And even if, you know, like Love Lines, I think was always some side, you know, or um, Dr. Laura was always a yeah. really good, and Dr. Ruth did radio, a syndicated radio show, and there, there would be, those types of advice shows were really nice in a way because they weren't controversial to the point of being like Rush Limbaugh. Right. They weren't incendiary, but they would say stupid shit. Callers would say dumb things. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Laura would say dumb things, stuff right. that you, or just stuff you disagreed with. Mm-hmm. And it, you feel part of that conversation, and yeah. I think that's I think that's what I was always seeking. Sometimes I would just listen to there would be some kind of like late night Christian preacher person talking, oh but God. it wasn't like fire and brimstone. It was mm-hmm. just talking about issues in the church today, and you're yeah. like, "Car's empty. I got nothing else going on. Tell me all <laughs> about it, brother." Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up Christian talk radio uh, because I don't know if you grew up religious. I did not, and I used to. I grew up in Northern Virginia, where there's pretty active Christian talk radio scene. And I used to drive around and listen to it all the time because it has, I didn't agree with almost anything that was being said, but I did feel very connected to the earnest attempt to articulate why 
the speaker held certain morals. And they were really, in a way, it was very vulnerable because somewhere encoded in all of it, not that they would ever explicitly say this, was, I just believe this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I need other people to believe it so that I don't feel alone. And doesn't it make sense for these reasons? And obviously, it's Christian Talk Radio, so they're only talking to people who would tend to agree with them. It's not like they're in active debate. But I think there is a sort of a connection there to, you know, something like Dr. Ruth or Loveline, where it's not like, as you say, Rush Limbaugh or or some political talk show where they're they're trying to provoke you. Um, it's people earnestly trying to sort out things like physical intimacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which is very hard. Nobody has figured that out ever. Um, mm-hmm. And these are people who are willing to get on on the air and speak into the void about what it feels like to try to know. How could you not <laughs> connect with that? <laughs> yeah. I, um, yeah, I, th- I think those kinds of conversations are really interesting. I, I did grow up going to church and it was, mm-hmm. I started having like this thing in like late high school where I started getting real born again Christian on into mm-hmm. my early college years. Mm-hmm. And then by my sophomore year, I was like, oh no. But I think the thing I learned in Christianity, one of the things that I think, looking back, what I wasn't able to articulate my frustrations at the time was just how it made external almost all internal processes. So mm. the giving it up to God or the, you know, allowing God to save you, allowing, you know, looking to God to solve your problems. And there's an old joke that was really common in the church, and I think it's pretty common even even outside of Christian church, uh, too. The person who, like, there's a giant flood and the man, you know, goes all the way to his roof and then these, you know, rescue boats come by to save him. He's like, no, 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 God will save me. They're like, all right. And then finally the water overtakes him and he drowns. He goes to heaven and he asks God. And he's like, he's like, I thought you were going to save me. And the guy, God said, I sent like three rescue boats to you. <laughs> you know, that sort of, and that was the joke is, is yeah. that, like, you're not looking for God's help in the, you know, where is God's help? And to me, that joke just kind of set in motion the idea that, like, Whatever God is, I don't mean to say there is no God or yeah. we don't, we should not believe in a God or what the God is or what have you, but honestly, it's going to be up to us as humans to figure shit out. Mm-hmm. It's going mm-hmm. to be up to us to find those solutions. And if God is a good model for helping you to understand where help comes from, I think that's awesome. But for me, I started realizing you can't just give things up to God. You do have to hold on to some of those things and do some of the work yourself. Yes. Um Yes. Not 100% can go up to God. And I and I think for me where Christianity was the most interesting was when we talked about personal stories and like how mm. you help people, how you do mm-hmm. stuff. And so some of the smaller town like Christian radio stuff would talk about like, what is the church doing? Like, what are we doing with our time? How do we bring people in? How do we like keep people mm-hmm. in our church? I'm like, those are real world issues. Yeah. If you run a bakery, how do I keep people coming to my bakery? Right. Is the same question as how do I keep people coming to my church? Right. And I think that those are really interesting as opposed to being like, well, God will provide. I have to say, I, it's it's so within the wires to me mm-hmm. to hear to hear you say this, this idea that you can't trust the structure. The notion of the structure is all of the eventualities have been foreseen. Everything has been anticipated. Please follow these rules and you will have no issues. And we all know that 
that is a recipe for uh, deep, <laughs> deep crisis. And that it life is most interesting in the moments where you go, they didn't think of this. I, I have noticed something. <laughs> and the system that is in place, whatever context we're talking about, is like, oh, no, we didn't think of that. We don't like... Please stop talking about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so it I, it's fascinating to hear that there was a spiritual backdrop to that for you, to creating a world where that kind of tension exists. Uh, struggling with religion is is a common thing for uh, so many people, like mm -hmm. how religion fits into your life. And, mm -hmm. and I think, it, you know, I'm probably still not there yet with a lot of things as to like how I feel about the world or how I think or how I want to feel or how I think about the world but i think where i'm at now has to do with that internal external battle and that mm -hmm. um i think so many more things are internal than i think we tend to externalize them and um and so if you're able to sort of like look inside yourself you'll understand what to do there i mean conversely there is there is an overarching system that you do have to accept Yes. Not just because it's imposed on you, but because just by believing that something exists, this relates to Welcome to Night Vale because of conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. We've all gone down rabbit holes of conspiracy theories. We've all been drawn into them. We probably all still have some level of conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the more I look at conspiracy theories and the more I study them, it's like they're such externalizations of yeah. these deep, deep fears. And some of those deep fears are related to racism, or misogyny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of those things are related to, you know, uh, anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And unpacking that requires looking at yourself. Yeah. You know, the story can be fun, but the story becomes a fully externalized religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that if you believe in a flat earth, you're an anti-Semite misogynist or whatever. It's just to say that you're looking to dismantle a society that you don't trust. You're looking to dismantle a structure that's been forced upon you. And you're looking to do it in the least impactful way possible by proving that the world <laughs> is flat. Um, yeah. But 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 there's a feedback that comes with that. There, there's a there's a positive feedback that comes with that because you can set up communities. that's sort of exciting to think, you know, what if moon landing <laughs> did not happen? <laughs> Which, by the way, I I'm not going to be able to give the name of the credit, but there was a comedian I saw. Or just a funny person on TikTok. And this was a few years ago. He said, my most controversial opinion is that we faked the moon landing and that they hired Stanley Kubrick to do it. But Stanley Kubrick is such a stickler for detail that he requested to shoot it on site, on location. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's a very funny joke structure. Yes. We're talking about good structure. Yes. Yes. Plenty more to come with Jeffrey Craner right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm very appreciative of this conversation we've been having about radio, but I know that theater and playwriting is also a big part of your artistic consciousness. So how did writing for the stage and performance enter your practice, and where does it fit into these ideas that we've been talking about for you? So I took theater classes in college. I never took acting. I never took technical theater. I took mm-hmm. playwriting and I took theater history and theater as literature. When we got to Bertolt Brecht, my mind was just blown. Mm-hmm. Like my mind was blown as to what he was doing with theater, mm-hmm. what he was doing with epic theater and how he structured it and what what he wanted to have happen. And he was, Brecht was a mid, you know, wrote primarily in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and he was in Germany leading up to the war, um, and he was a communist, and he was very aware of what was happening in in Germany and got out of there and was a little nomadic and eventually made his way to America. Almost made it in Hollywood. He had become good friends with the actor Charles Lawton, and then uh, the House on American Activities Commission <laughs> or Committee formed... And basically, he didn't have a job anymore because he was Not so fast, sir. (laughs) Um, But the goal of his plays was this thing that he called the alienation effect. Mm -hmm. And he wanted the audience to laugh when the actor cried. And he wanted Mm -hmm. the audience to cry when the actor laughed. Like, he wanted to invert always the emotion because he wanted a style of acting that was more demonstration Mm -hmm. than pure embodiment of the character like he was the antithesis of the method actor right right. he wanted somebody to demonstrate he's like you know his essay street scene was about think about acting uh, the way you would describe if you witnessed an accident on the street Uh and the police showed up and asked you to describe the accident you might say the man stepped off the curb while looking left instead of right and I, and then you might actually demonstrate that with your body mm-hmm. to the cop. You're not acting as this man. You're not putting on a show. You're not trying to get into the head of this man. Mm-hmm. You're just simply showing through demonstration. And he wanted his actors to kind of do that sort of thing mm-hmm. because he wanted the audience all the time to be aware of the, of the character's motivations. Mm-hmm. So acting choices have, have to do with 
how somebody eats if they're poor versus how somebody eats if they're rich. Right. How you hold cheese if you've never had food on a regular basis Mm -hmm. is very different than if you are served a meal three, four times a day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so those were the things he got to, and that stuff comes out very clearly in his work. And my mind was just blown like it just was like you can do of course you can do this on stage in a way you can't in a refined aesthetic like film yes and also he tended to tell his stories linearly like he wasn't jumping around in time like back and forth but he did jump in time so he didn't believe in the standard aristotelian curve of rising action climax Uh denouement Uh He just believed scenes should be scenes. He was really into boxing, and he thought just a scene should just have an opening bell and a closing bell, even if literally they're not there. Here we are again, imposed boundaries, right? Imposed boundaries. And then the next scene can take place 20 years later. It could have a whole different set of characters. Mm -hmm. Something's moving the plot forward, the evening forward, but um, your scenes didn't have to go one into the other. Like, it didn't have to have a steady flow. Yeah. You know, I'm so I was not expecting us to talk about Brecht, but I'm really excited that we are because um, it's giving me a chance to get on my soapbox about Brecht uh, in a in a way. I I too am a very big fan, and I I want to put to you this thought that I've had for a long time, which is you've just given me language to it to express it more clearly than I've been able to before. Which is we started off our conversation today talking about how the beauty of a podcast is that it includes you. It says I know you're listening. But implicit in that is like, I mean, this is similar to what we were talking about, about late night radio, right? Like, you get it. You're trying to figure this stuff out, too. You you know what's going on. And I think that's a big part of the alienation effect also, is that it's an invitation to the audience to say, you know that this is an illusion. You know, we're presenting you with something. So get in on this with us. Help us play at this story and what it can mean and what it can represent. I think that's very warm and inviting. And I feel like all too often Brecht gets talked about, or worse, staged, (laughs) in a very cold way, when it is actually intensely human in that regard. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think his stuff is very, uh, it is very cold and dry in a lot of ways. Um, I think if I'm going to fault him on anything, is this that, uh, we could use some paring down of length of plays. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, yeah. But when I got to New York in the mid aughts, I joined the Neo Futurist Theater Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, originally, you know, they've, they've been in Chicago forever and they've been in New York City for almost 20 years now. And um, it's for performance art collective. And, and they were based loosely when they were founded in 1988, they were based loosely on the Italian futurists mm-hmm. from the early part of the 20th century. And the Italian futurists were absolute assholes. They were fascists and warmongers and (laughs) terrible racists and misogynists, but they were all of these like machismo filled 20 year old men who had ideas. They had capital T thoughts about Mm -hmm. art Mm -hmm. and they wrote all these manifestos about what art should be. And there's some really good stuff in there, right? Like, I don't mean to be like, we're not going to get a conversation of separating art from artist, but there's <laughs> no. some fascinating stuff about what that they believed differently from Brecht. They believed that theater, live theater was, um, was a chance to antagonize the audience. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. a chance to, you know, they didn't refer to their shows as plays or shows. They referred to them as battles. <laughs> you know, oh they, 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 they were really pretentious pricks, uh-huh. but, 
they would do things like, sell, you know, do a show, sell tickets. You know, theater at this time was like going to the theater was like watching your evening soaps, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is like watching Beverly Hills 90210 in the 90s. That it was just a thing you did in the evening. You could go to the theater for a penny or whatever. Watch and watch your, and, and they were as deep as soap operas a lot, in a lot of cases, <laughs> which is why the futurists were doing what they were doing, which is to say it should be more thought provoking than that. In mm -hmm. fact, you should actually feel uneasy and unsafe in the theater. <laughs> and so they would do things like sell tickets, like three or four tickets to the exact same seat so that people would get into arguments before the shows. Oh my God. Um, they would do stuff like do a play that was. They would only lift, they would do the whole play, but they would only lift the curtain about two feet off the ground. <laughs> oh so you couldn't really see anything. You just see feet shuffling around and hear dialogue. Yeah. And uh, they would do, and it would always be really bizarre, like strange shouts and screams and weird shit. They would dress up like robots. They were really big into automatons. Wow. And then uh, sometimes they would just create crazy machines that made weird sounds. My favorite thing was is that they also encouraged local fruit stands to bring their carts at the end of the day so they could sell spoiled or old <laughs> fruit for cheap. Cause, and then it would start, it would get the audience to throw shit at them. Yeah. Because yeah. they would get in fights with the audience all uh -huh, the time. Uh -huh. um, they would sell seats that were broken. There would be no chair in the uh -huh, seat. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, shit like that. So they, they were really interesting in that way that they thought theater could be really provocative, that theater should be. And it was this reaction to the old ways where theater was just a, an escape, you know, calming. Yes, yes. And when you realize that a medium can do something different than it's been doing, I think that's a really important thing. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to feel it in the moment. You know, in, in doing podcasting, there was a lot about podcasts I liked, you know, listening to them before we started Night Vale. And I still listen to some of those early podcasts that I originally listened to. Yeah. Um, I hadn't listened to WTF in years, and then he showed up, Mark Marin showed up on another podcast I was listening to, uh -huh, uh -huh. and I just felt so warm oh hearing his voice again. Mm -hmm. I was like, I forgot how meaningful Mark Marin is to me yes. as a voice, as yes. a presence in my ears. And, um, and, and, you know, so I wanted to create what I already thought podcasting was doing well, mm -hmm. but it, it it's important to remember to think, like, it's it's okay to, like, push it to do something else that it's not already doing yeah and um i don't know necessarily that i've fully done that in a huge way other than like night vale was the first serialized fiction podcast but at the time i remember thinking i don't know if this is a good idea because no one does this uh-huh uh -huh. <laughs> well okay i'm really glad we're talking about the state of podcasting because that that is the last thing i have on my list to talk to you about but before mm. we get there i just want to say to your question you just kind of invoked like i don't know how much i've done that necessarily i think the thing that is coming through really clearly to me from your conversation about theater both the italian futurists and brecht is that another persistent thread in your work that i don't think i would have been able to articulate until we talked about this is it is very hard to listen to passively there is always a sense that what you are hearing and what is actually being told in the story are two different things. Mm -hmm. And you sit in a kind of, I don't want to say tension because that makes it sound like it's unpleasant or uncomfortable to listen to. And I don't mean that. But again, there's an imposed 
set of boundaries, right? There's the story that is being literally told in words, and there's the story that's really happening. And you as a listener exist between those two poles. And you're sort of constantly moving from one towards the other. And that is a very meaningful difference if we just stay with audio fiction for a moment. That's a very meaningful difference between something like Night Vale, something like Within the Wires, something like Unlicensed, and I don't want to name any companies. (laughs) But um, a lot of other audio fiction companies that are basically making sometimes very well audio movies um, where literally what you're hearing is literally what's happening the end. But let's talk about the world of podcasting in 2023 and how different it is from the world of podcasting in 2012 when Night Vale first came out. Because I remember going to your two-year anniversary show at Town Hall in mm-hmm. here in New York. And I remember I'm sitting in Town Hall, this 1,100-seat, uh-huh. legendary Broadway theater. And I'm there with my friends. And Cecil says something about the glow cloud. And the entire room... 1,100 voices, sold out show, goes, all hail. (laughs) And we looked at each other like, what the fuck is going on? Like, uh, how did we get here from this show that, you know, just two years early, we'd been texting each other like, have you ever heard anything like this before? Like, what is this thing? How did it become this? And it, one of the reasons I've been fixating on that memory in preparing to talk to you today is... That's before Serial. And Mm -hmm. there is this very unfortunate narrative in a lot of modern conversation about podcasting that it all started with Serial. And that it it, there's before Serial when kind of nothing mattered and after Serial when everybody started taking it seriously. And it's just wrong. (laughs) That is is not true. Um, And it's lazy. Uh, Shots fired from Sam Dingman. Shots Um, fired. (laughs) (laughs) But... I guess I'm just really interested to know what you make of how the medium has matured. It strikes me, I guess, that a lot of the profit-driven energy around podcasting is trying to access an audience that you and Joseph created. Mm -hmm. And or helped to create. And you didn't, to my understanding, get into it with the attempt of making any profit whatsoever. No, we hoped that it would like make a little bit of money that we could, you know, enough to like, we definitely wanted people listening to it. But yeah, we we, we absolutely didn't. We kind of thought we were late to the podcast party Mm -hmm. when we started in 2012, which was absolutely not true. Which is wild. It's wild. Which is, we were like, it's already saturated, (laughs) right? Yeah. it's crazy to think that in, in 2012, I think the, the entire medium had only existed for seven years. Yeah, it is wild. And, and, and there were so many, I was sort of starstruck by all the podcasters out there, right? Yeah. Like, you know, whether we're talking about Ira Glass or, you know, uh, Mark Maron, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but even like smaller shows that I was listening to on the, on the regular, like mm-hmm. uh, Stop Podcasting Yourself, yeah. still listen to that show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's 13 straight years I've been listening to. Yeah. I, think, I think I have not missed an episode of that show. Yeah. Some uh-huh. of them I may have been more distracted while doing lawn work or something, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. 
yeah, those boys are in their 40s. And when I started listening, they were in their 20s. And yeah. that's crazy to me. Yeah. Um, I think that there's there's a long history there in podcasts that gets sort of forgotten. I mean, in some ways, to credit the serial narrative is, is that it was the first podcast that told everyone there's a podcast. Yes. WTF was the first exclusively podcast. Like, everyone knew This American Life, but that was radio before podcast. Yes, right. WTF was the first one where some more, like, slightly less mainstream friends and family members were like i started listening to this wtf yeah yeah and it's he's really interesting um <laughs> he's mad <laughs> yeah yeah um that was like the first one that i noticed that people had a connection to podcasting because of mark Marin. yeah but serial was the first one where now i once serial came out in 2014 mm-hmm. i no longer had to explain to people what a podcast was yes right and right. and so I do appreciate that. But you know, to speak to the finances of how podcasting was, the thing I'm gonna I'm gonna go down the most braggy path. Sure. Um, yeah. That I'm just I'll just say it. I'm, I'm you know. It is I don't justified. Brag. It is justified. <laughs> I don't brag. I mostly boast. As Missy Elliott <laughs> okay. once said, I um you know when when Serial started a few years after Night Vale started, you know it was in that first year of Welcome to Night Vale. So in 2013 mm-hmm. is when Night Vale. Right at about the one-year mark where we started, you know, skyrocketing the charts, having a ton of listeners. And then we were number one overall on the overall iTunes charts for four straight months. Mm-hmm. And... Doesn't happen anymore. No. And and also, I don't remember it happening before then for a show that uh, other than This American Life. Right. WTF was was always up there. There were yeah. a few others. Joe Rogan was starting to sort of appear regularly on the mm-hmm. charts, and there were a few shows that you would always see regularly near the top of that list. But mm-hmm. that was, it just, I didn't remember a show, and um, I could be wrong, but I didn't remember a show running that long, uh, having that long of a run at number one. Yep. And what I realized was happening was the reason we were having so many downloads and we were appearing at the top of the charts was because we were a serial podcast and nobody else was doing that. Uh-huh. And I didn't we didn't set out to be like no one's doing serial podcasts, let's make a serial podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we went ahead of this American life for four straight months. Yeah. And in 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 summer fall of 2013 mm-hmm. and then a year later serial comes out and I my first thought was I think they noticed us. <laughs> I th- and and I don't mean that they were like mad or jealous or trying to beat us. No, I no, think no. they realized, wait, if you do, you don't have to do radio. Radio has to reset almost every day. Right. But you can tell a serial show just like they're, you know, we weren't even doing that on Netflix quite yet either. Uh-huh. A lot of people were still getting DVDs in 2013, you know, <laughs> in the mail. And I, um, I think that the accidental thing that Night Vale showed was you can do a serial podcast. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. fact that they named it Serial, not the Adnan Syed case. Right. Not Sarah Koenig investigates. Right. They called it Serial because that is the financial model yes. of how it was going to be successful, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is what Night Vale was doing, which mm-hmm. was people were downloading not one episode, they were downloading all 30 some odd episodes right. at once, and that was breaking the system. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. So That's I think I think Night Vale had a huge impact on that. Um, now, listen, somebody who works for 
Sarah Koenig and Serial and Ira Glass and that whole crew might be like, honestly, we were p- starting this in 2011 before you were even born. So sure, that perhaps. could be true too. Perhaps. But that's how I felt. So there's my braggy moment that Night Vale created Serial. No, I <laughs> talk about shots fired. Hello. Um, no, I I think it's 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 a very interesting point that you're making because if we think about what this American life was doing at that time. We're talking, broadly speaking, about... Like, I remember when the Harper High School series of episodes of This American Life came out, Mm -hmm. um, and it was a big deal that that was a two-parter. They were going to tell half the story one week and then half the story the next week, and you were going to have to come back the next week. And... I mean, it was incredible reporting. It was a very important story, obviously. But much was made of it at the time because of the fact that it was this multi-part thing. And that was a level of publicity generated by a show that was already very popular, obviously, for just having the audacity to make two episodes, right? (laughs) A story that took two episodes to tell. And so here you guys come with this open-ended narrative that is unfolding a little bit every other week. So given your unique position in the story of modern podcasting, one of my favorite questions to ask podcasters is... What do you make of the word podcast? I'm fine with it in the way that I'm fine with the word cookie, like a thing that you eat. (laughs) Like I just, it's a silly word. Uh Movie is another silly word that we use Uh because it's, and podcast is a silly word. Like it's a weird thing. It's, it's named after the iPod. It's, yeah, it's like broadcast, but podcast. And I think that that's kind of dumb, but also so dumb. (laughs) It's just, I don't like bat an eye if somebody calls it, obviously a movie or cookie because that's Mm -hmm. what I've always called the thing and it's just always been called a podcast and so I kind of got used to it Mm -hmm. and now it doesn't feel weird Mm -hmm. like like as a sports fan now people are like we're gonna try and win that ship we're gonna try I'm like shit oh championship (laughs) we've just because that word is too long yeah yeah, and I become old man who shouts at clouds (laughs) uh, because kids are shortening words Uh hockey players say gato instead of gatorade Uh you know and it sounds silly when you're not used to it, but I'm used to podcast, so mm-hmm. it seems fine. I don't have really a better word for it, honestly. Do you like when people say pod? Like this week on the pod. I, my, the I way I'm asking the question is revealing the fact that I despise that. But <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm i a little like, listen, if you want to pursue that ship for your team, that <laughs> ship, um, yeah. If you want a glass of Gato to cool off, like that is perfectly fine by me. Mm-hmm. I will hand you a glass of Gatorade and I will cheer on your championship efforts. Yes. Um, I think I just, I missed the boat where we called it pod mm-hmm. and it feels too late for me to pick that up now. Yeah. So yeah, good, good for y'all. Yes. You're making me think about, um, I remember there was a survey a few years ago, a number of years ago at this point about people who listen at, 1.5 or double speed to their podcasts and they asked and I apologize I can't remember it it was either Jad Abumrad or Ira Glass so mm-hmm. you know the the twin Orson Wellses of podcasting sure <laughs> um and 
I would have expected them to say, it is a crime to speed up my genius, you know. <laughs> and whichever one of them it was that responded to this said, if people are doing me the honor of listening, they can do that however they want. Um, yeah. And your, your answer to the podcast question it seems uh, in a similar spirit. Uh, yeah. I have some thoughts on speed of listening, though. Oh, tell me, tell me. I really am against, and again, however you want to do it, you do your thing. Mm -hmm. But I think, for me, it feels it feels like a cheat. I'm not anxious to get through any episode mm -hmm. of a podcast. If I mm -hmm. listen to a podcast, it's either because I'm doing research, mm -hmm. which means I may or may not care about your show, mm -hmm. or I'm checking it out because somebody mentions it to me, but... If I'm checking it out or I love your show, I want to hear the whole thing exactly as you made it. Yeah. And that's important to me because of what we've talked about in in my relationship to radio. It's about the voice. It's about the conversation. I honestly never care what the story is about in almost any circumstance. It makes me frustrating for people like my co-writer Janina Matthewson on <laughs> Within the Wires and for <laughs> Joseph, too, because they're both very, like, they have a very good plot mechanics in their brains. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I tend to just be like... what. However it gets, it'll figure itself out. And they're like, no, 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 you have to figure this out, though. Right. And I'm like, but it's, honestly, I like these characters. And they're like, yeah, yeah but then they have to do a thing <laughs> and then get in some trouble and solve it. Yeah. I'm like, okay, 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 we'll do that. Uh -huh. I, I want to be there for the normal speed of your voice. If you have a composer and you write a fiction podcast and that person has composed bed music, I don't want to fuck up that music. Yeah. Even if you just have a quirky little theme song. I want to hear your theme song. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And I want to hear you talk at the normal rate. Conversations are more than just words and they're more than just topics. Yeah. They are about the pauses in between. They're about, they're about a meaningful pace. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, even if it's a chat show, I want to listen to it in or at a normal speed. You're making me think about in within the wires moments where they're, uh, if I think about the first season specifically, and the what are purportedly the meditation tapes, um, the moments where there are music and where there is not music, and the little subtle modulations in tone in Janina's voice. All of these are things that would be lost at a more advanced rate of speed. So I don't know. It sounds like um, it sounds like we are in agreement on this. Yeah. Sensitive. Matter. I get. It, I do get it more annoyed at that than I do the word at the phrase "Welcome to the Pod" or on this week's pod. <laughs> right. It's when people are like, "I I listen to your show at like one and a half speed," and I'm like, "Never tell me that." <laughs> right. Right. Then you missed it. Then you you didn't really hear. You didn't really hear. Yeah. Because now you're just listening for the story and you're not listening for the show. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's a harsh way to say that, and I take it back. And you should listen however you want to. <laughs> no, just no, don't no. Tell me I, about it. <laughs> I get you. I get you. I mean, you are. If I may, it, it, one of the re the reason I'm excited to be talking to you is that you are somebody who views this medium as a canvas for artistry. Mm -hmm. And even though some of Bertolt Brecht's plays should be shorter, it's a similar thing. He's using the stage as a medium to explore the potential of theater. And why not give yourself the gift of going on that ride with this particular artist? I agree. Um, did anyone ever say a phrase to you that changed the course of your creative life? Yes. 
I can think of one. This is probably not the most profound thing in the world, but I will say it because it sticks with me. Mm-hmm. And when I was still in Dallas, there was, back in 99, 2000, there was a theater company there called Ground Zero Theater, and they did, um, basically, you know, they were soliciting um, short plays. And I wrote a short play, and it was the first play that I wrote that got produced, you know. And so I did this short play. I don't remember what it was called. It was it was satire. Like, it was about, like, board you know, board members at a, at a corporation, Uh basically having orgasms thinking about, it was just this really ham-handed satire about whatever. (laughs) And, um, anyways, we did it. It got some laughs and I was very proud of it because it did, it got laughs. Like it Uh was, it did what it was supposed to do. It was was broadly comic and funny. And I remember the artistic director whose name is escaping me now, unfortunately, but she was talking to me afterwards and she was like, we're giving notes on everyone's plays if you want them. And I was like, sure. And so she said, you know, this is so funny. I think it would be funnier if it was less funny. Mm. Meaning I think you are looking for the joke on every page or every few lines, which is awesome for a sitcom, but in the, in the in the world of this, I think you need some pacing, and I think if you could find this ground in reality, you would do. It would be even funnier. Yeah, and I That's did good not advice. like that. I did not like that note yeah, at all. I'm yeah. like, no, everyone was laughing. <laughs> I didn't say that to her, but I, I felt that of inside. Course, of and, course, but that stuck with me, and I think I talk about that all the time with Night Vale. It's gravity and levity, gravity and levity, gravity and levity. It is a give and take, and if you are always on, you're never on in some ways. Jeffrey Craner, um, thank you so much. It's been a, Thanks, an honor to talk to you. I, this was a damn delight. What a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. Thank you to Jeffrey Craner for joining me on the show this week. Check out the new season of Within the Wires. It has just launched season eight. You can also, of course, still listen to Welcome to Night Vale. It is ongoing and as delightful as ever. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins. And as always, you can reach me with your thoughts on anything that you heard on this episode or any episode of The Midnight Disease by emailing midnight at walt.fm. I will talk to you tomorrow on another installment of Good Company, and in the meantime, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Back in your headphones soon, and until then, keep driving.
You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.